Welcome to the Endurance Podcast. My name's Mark Laithwaite, and I'm here with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be talking about what's new in the world of endurance sports, and we'll also be telling you how you can achieve your best on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon, boys, and uh, welcome back. We have to ask the million-dollar question. Ian, is it raining where you are? It's not. <laughs> it's uh, it's cloudy, but it's not raining, which is a big contrast from yesterday. We're on a 100% record with you then, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. How about you? Mike, what's the wind forecast where you are? I am pleased to announce things have returned back to normal and it is pouring down in South Wales. <laughs> 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 Hallelujah. I'm looking out the window now and it's absolutely stair rods coming down. It's absolutely bouncing down. I feel like we broke our duck, unfortunately. Yep. Um, but uh, but it does feel quite warming that we're back to normal northern weather. So, uh, so this week, we haven't got a guest on the show this week. We decided what we we're just going to do is just kind of shoot the breeze because there's a lot of topics which have come up over the last few weeks that um, between... Uh, Myself and Mike and Ian, we've been really interested in, and we want just to have a little bit of time to talk about them, really. So we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna name this week's podcast "What's on Your Mind." That's what we're gonna do. So um, I'm gonna come to you first of all. Uh, first of all, Mike, um, what is on your mind? What have you seen this week that you want to talk about in the podcast? Perfect, thanks, Mark. First off, let me congratulate you both on the Lakeland Hundred both of you on your organising and race directorship, and then Ian on almost kissing that 26-hour mark. But uh, (laughs) impressive following you both over the course of the weekend. And for those listeners who haven't, you need to get over to YouTube and check out Mr Fox. Amazing (laughs) warm-up. Most of of my week since we've been on last is watching your numerous various old clips of Mr Fox. Um, on, On my mind is a lot of stuff that, is crops up on my mind quite regularly. So um, very recently, I run a run workshop with a running club here in South Wales, something that's semi-regular with myself with different clubs. And um, the topics that we talk about are nearly always followed or preceded by the same questions. So they're probably good things for me to chat about here and get get a message out to a, to a bigger audience. So, so the first one, it's, it's the number one question that get asked by runners all the time. What's the best shoe that I should be wearing? So they always want that definitive answer, that one one make, one one model of shoe that I think is the best. And and categorically, there's not one best shoe. There's probably not even one best shoe um, for the individual although many people will find a shoe that they feel very comfortable with and will stick to it. That's absolutely great if you um, tend not to pick up any injuries and and you're quite comfortable with that. But most people come to me uh, or come to these forums that I'm in with the usual thing of, I overpronate, I've been told I'm an overpronator, I need a motion control shoe or an anti-pronation shoe. So I think it's probably worth me giving a little bit of my thoughts on that and some of the evidence 
that supports my thoughts. So this is quite a well-rehearsed next five minutes, so it should it might might sound quite scripted, but it's not. So pronation, for those who aren't familiar with it, is the act of your foot rolling from the outside of your heel down onto a, a flat sort of foot position and then rolling through the big toe to, to push off as you as you run. Now pronation has been made out to be evil. If you pronate, it's something you should try not to do. If you're an overpronator, you're guaranteed to get problems. And to be honest, most of that rhetoric has been exacerbated and promoted by the multi-million dollar sports footwear industry. Um, pronation is a completely normal and needed mechanism of, of the foot. Um, it is probably when it does become a problem and it's important to note that it doesn't always become a problem if and when it becomes a problem with people it's generally because they either promote uh, pronate too soon for too long or with too much force and generally that's to do with their training and their load management rather than the foot weather or their foot biomechanics so that would be my first take home for any listeners is don't stress about whether you pronate or overpronate or how you pronate. Um, and certainly, if you're not getting any problems with it, don't worry about it. If you go to a high street shop that does run in assessments, they generally just look at your foot and they will probably zoom in on those because most shoe types that they sell are based on what happens to the foot during running. When actually, what you really want to see is someone who's assessing everything from the sort of waist down and sometimes even further up. So um, as a rule of thumb, the answer that I give these guys in these workshops is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't stress about how your running biomechanics are. When you are looking for a shoe, try and find a shoe that only meets two parameters in my mind. Number one, that it's affordable for you, depending on your budget. And number two, that it's comfortable for yourself. If you meet those two as your first parameters, then you probably got as much chance of being fine with your footwear as anything else. And then I also try to advocate with people that, and it's it's a tactic that I adopt as well. I wear, I probably have at any one time about half a dozen pairs of shoes at home. They're all different makes, they're all different models, they're all different drop heights, they're all different sort of designs. And I will rotate my running shoes practically every run. We can't, we can't cheat physics. We can't cheat the loads and stresses that, and forces that we put through our bodies when we run or cycle or, or any activity. What we can do is manipulate where we direct those stresses within the body. So if I alternate my shoes whenever I run, all I'm doing is maybe my calves take a bit of a kick in one week, one run, but the next time it goes to my knees and my hips or or wherever it's directed. As long as I'm dissipating them to different places, then I'm generally probably giving myself the most bulletproof strategy I can to avoid problems. Now, I know when I run, if I wanted to do, if I wear racing flats or some sort of minimal drop shoes, then my calves are in bits, but also I can run faster in them so if i'm trying to go out one day and run a really fast session for speed then i just accept that wearing those shoes that help will will crucify my calves for a couple of day after what i won't do is go out and do a double digit run in a racing shoe i'll wear something else so it's just a case of learning about you and your body so i think that that's the biggest thing that's been on my mind the last the last week with that have you guys got any thoughts on on pronation and footwear 
Um, yeah, I mean, exactly what you said. I'm in a position, obviously, where I own a running shop. So uh, I do find that, that fascinating. What, with, the, with the gait analysis, we, um, <clears throat> I mean, we're lucky because we've got a qualified podiatrist in store who's got a bit of, bit of knowledge. But you're right. I mean, we, the problem I have is gait analysis half the time is just used to sell not just shoes, but what we notice with a lot of people is inserts as well. Yep. So a lot of the big sports shops, it seems that everybody's, they're adding on an extra 20 to 30 pound standard insole into a into the shoe and it's just an upsell so i think you're absolutely right um but I, I i agree with you my view on it is i switch shoes all the time and i say that to people exactly what you just said i say to them in the shop one pair of shoes will cause a stress somewhere and another pair of shoes will cause a stress somewhere else exactly as you've just said it so i think the best thing to do is just keep changing your shoes and the stresses all the time and if you've got three or four different types of shoes just absolutely just keep rotating them. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. And again, if you know, if, if budget is an issue for a lot of people, then there's plenty of places these days that have almost got a, a DFS style never ending sale. And you can pick up bargains and discounted shoes and you don't have to spend a lot of money on them and you can soon accumulate a couple of pairs of shoes. Uh, and obviously they're going to last longer anyway because you're rotating the shoes. So it's only an initial um investment isn't it i, I do similar I, I rotate my shoes and um also just a little bit of awareness around some of the, the literature on this interestingly some of the uh, you've probably read some of the reviews mike uh, but uh some of the experts on this topic one of the key things that they say that you should look at is just how comfortable a shoe feels not whether it's a motion control or you know a particular category of shoe but it's whether you feel naturally comfortable with it because i think whatever shoe you put on eventually you you change your style to fit with it but i think if something feels uncomfortable when you put it on that's suggesting to me that i probably need to adjust much more in terms of my biomechanics to fit the shoe whereas i want a shoe to sort of fit my style and probably how comfortable i feel in it initially is a good indicator of that so if i've got three or four pairs of shoes that all felt fairly natural to me when i first put them on and rotate them then that seems to be a strategy that works well for me yeah, absolutely. And I think on that one then as well, with for the listeners who might want to know more, um, there is a really brilliant podiatrist in the UK, a guy called Ian Griffiths. He's got an open access article. If anybody wanted to look for it, just Google the myth of overpronation. Brilliant read. And on a bigger scale, there's a guy called Simon Bartold of Bartold Biomechanics in Australia. One of the leading guys in the world on, on sort of shoe and footwear with runners so they're probably good signposts for people who might want to read more yeah yeah what's uh, well, just one point on that there uh mike i just want to bring up you know the point about making about comfort mm. uh, there was a, an article published many many years ago and the outcome of that article was i think the tagline almost was just buy shoes that feel comfortable yeah yeah and I, you probably remember it more than i do because you two are obviously uh, looking at the research and those kind of things but I do think that the danger as well is how people interpret uh, scientific journals and how they then come across in magazines or on Facebook or on Twitter. Mm. Because one thing I would say with the running shoes, it's fine to say just buy shoes that feel comfortable. But the upper of the shoe and what it's made from can sometimes determine how it feels. So we've seen people who have serious ankle problems. And it's, I think, when, you know, like, version where the ankles are collapsing in quite severely and causing them problems and they bought a shoe because when they put it on it feels really comfortable like a pair of slippers and certain running shoe manufacturers will design the uppers to feel very comfortable because they know that's what people buy on and actually the midsole and what the midsole 
how it acts might be for those people really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the bottom line is for those people, they need to be seeing a podiatrist anyway, not a running shop sales assistant, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I think you know the advice you're going to get is based on on on, or the answer to the questions is based on the quality of the person you're asking a lot of the time. So um, so yeah, get in front of the right people. You know, I, I I see, and I bet you guys see it all the time. The number of people, certainly novice runners, who when I see them because they've picked up problems, and I say, so what's made you choose these shoes? They've bought them on their colour because they match the running tights that they bought, and it there's no more thought to it than that. Yeah, they've probably spent buckets of time researching things like GPS watches, training programs, all of this stuff. And then probably, you know, and, and fundamentally, the most important piece of running kit that they're going to purchase, they've bought off nothing more complicated than colour. Yeah, yeah. Or Good likewise, <laughs> like, like we, we, although we mentioned about there always being sales on, the other thing, I, the other common mistake I see is people buying them based off the price. So this... Yeah. There's a half price pair of shoes. Now that's suddenly affordable to me. Um, that suddenly makes it the most appealing shoe that I should go and buy. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. Yeah. And then I guess coming on from that, the next thing that's been topical with me is um, I think I think I must see in clinic, I must see three of these a week at least. And I probably have done every week for, for 10 years. So this, this is the runner that comes into me or the endurance athlete that comes into me with, um, and the listeners can't see it, but I'm doing in my fingers for inverted commas, tight calves, tight muscles. Um, and the usual story goes along the lines of, um, I've come in because I want a massage because my calves are tight and I stretch, 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 but they don't feel any better. And sometimes I get quite a good response when I drop this bomb on them. And sometimes it takes a while for it to the plant, the seed to plant. But effectively, most of the time, these muscles, although I genuinely believe that they feel tight, they actually have a perception of tightness in these muscles. A simple muscle length test will reveal that there's actually no tightness there at all. And if I then follow it up with a simple muscle strength test, something as simple as a single leg calf raise, then actually fundamentally there is a level of weakness and fatigue in these muscles that is, is shockingly apparent and questions how they've even been able to transmit forces through that structure for the mileage that they're reporting. Um, the big giveaway, the big warning sign for most people is if things feel tight and they're stretching and it's not making any benefit, any tangible benefit to them, then then you need, as long as you're doing, you know, whatever stretch you do in the right way, then generally it's probably worth thinking, and you don't have to go and see someone, put up one finger against the wall, balance on one leg, raise up onto your tiptoes as many times as you can under control. The second you start not being able to come right up onto your tiptoes, or you're just dropping back down without any control, stop and see what number you're on. I generally feel that you should be on about 35 to 40 as a runner um, now that doesn't mean there's people who do less and don't get problems it doesn't mean there's people who do um, more and get so there's less people who don't get problems and there's people who can do more and do get problems so it's not it's not categorical but um, there are people who um, will be single digits they literally cannot do more than single digits with it and um, they need to go after a, a basic basic calf strengthening program both straight leg and bent leg to hit all the muscles in that region 
and they will probably find that that pays far more dividends to them than any um, stretching or soft tissue work. So the, the tight calf muscles um, is a um, big, big issue that I see commonly. And um, often it's a strength issue or, or a fatigue issue more than strength. If you're running, the average, the average runner is probably doing somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 steps a mile. And they're generating maybe two to six times their body weight through that calf complex. So if you can't go off and just control simply um, nine to ten single leg calf raises, then then they're probably not tight. So so it's a really simple check that most people can do themselves. They don't need to end up paying money for someone. A lot of the time, that just treats for the sake of treating because someone's you know someone's come to you because they think they need a massage, so they massage them. And actually, they might give them the advice to go away and do some strength work as well, or they might just continue to to treat and give give the patient what they want and, and take their money. Um, so be be careful, runners out there with with the perception of tightness. It may it may just be a tired and fatigued muscle. So that's the second one, and then the final one, which is which is um, interesting on your thoughts on this, Mark, as well. Someone I got an email this week, really. If someone's going to become a coach and they're asking these sort of questions at the early stages, then this guy's probably going to be a phenomenal coach. There's a young guy called Paul who's just qualified as a triathlon coach, and he emailed me completely out of the blue, and his question was so well thought out. He basically said that he'd followed some of my work and some other people's work, and he realized that the biggest cause of injury in novice athletes and runners was probably just a little bit too much too soon. But the question he wanted to ask me was what my thoughts were, my experiences were with the number one causes of injuries in experienced athletes, in those age group type athletes. And I was like, wow, the fact that you're thinking of those sort of questions on day one of graduating as a relatively young coach was was phenomenal. And the answer was was relatively easy to hit him back with and, and in my opinion my experience it is the age group athlete with limited time to train so when they train they always train quite hard so as most of us would know in a periodized training program sort of zone one to zone three the the constant zone two guys they're always training quite hard and i always think it's because they are time limited so they're trying to make the most of every session um, so as soon as they get in, they start working quite hard, they keep that difficulty up. There's no real long, easy sessions and there's no really short, really hard sessions. So I think that was my answer to him. Um, the that he followed that up with, what are my strategies to dealing with that? And a lot of the time it's just trying to get them to understand that the six to 10 hours a week that they might have can be manipulated differently to do shorter sessions, longer sessions, but still use the same amount of time um, rather than implementing things different to the just tweaks to their training program. So, yeah, I loved that question. And the first thing I thought about when I got it was when we're on the podcast, I need to see what your thoughts are on that one. Yeah, well, me with my leg hanging off. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Leg, <laughs> yeah, post-op. I'm guilty of that one, aren't I? Yeah, I, I mean, it is an interesting question. I think from a, a top-end age group, perspective I suppose before we kind of discuss you know what, what the most injuries are and what the most common ones are I over the last I think everybody needs to understand if you want to be a top age group or if you want to be a professional athlete you need to do a lot of training 
And yeah. you have to be training hard, whether it's volume, intensity. The bottom line is that all elite marathon runners, really, they're doing 100-plus mile weeks, aren't they, and that kind of thing. You know, So it, you have to do a lot of training. I think when you're doing that much training, you are always on that edge, aren't you? You're always close to that threshold. So that's if you want to get to the highest level, you're going to put yourself in that high-risk category because you're always going to be doing that much training. And I think that's one of the problems you see a lot of it dumbed down as well. How many times I've seen on magazine articles or on the Facebook or wherever else, people saying, if you feel fatigued, you should rest. Always rest. When you feel tired, don't train. You should rest. And the reality is, as we all know, the elite guys at the top end of the sport, when they wake up in the morning and they're feeling fatigued from the previous day, they don't rest. They wouldn't be able to do their training volume if they weren't doing it in some kind of fatigue state. So, you know, that you have to do a high amount of volume or, or intensity or both, which puts you in that high-risk category. Um, the other thing, of course, is apart from the other things like swimmer's shoulder, like an anterior shoulder, or, you know, you do get bike-related injuries, the bulk of the injuries are going to come from running, aren't they? All the uh, decent triathletes I know who are injured, 90% of the injuries are run-related. Mm. So if someone's at high injury risk, then you know that swimming biking is always going to be a lower risk for triathletes than running um, and, I, and I think it comes back to the points that you're making the more I've learned now is that it, it generally just comes down to a lack of mobility and strength work they're not doing the additional bits so for someone who's, who's at the top level they're probably they're trying to do 20 hours of training a week they can't fit in the additional stuff so because they can't fit in that additional strength and mobility stuff and they're in that high risk category of doing the high volume and the high intensity that's where the injuries come about Whereas maybe a lot of people who are who are not doing that volume of training, um, you know, they're, they're the ones who probably don't need it as much. I would say from my perspective, but they're probably the ones who fit it in, you know, because they've got they've got the time to do it. So, so yeah, I I, I think that would be my view on it, really. Yeah, cool. And that's it. That's my point. That's been what's been on my mind this week. Can I ask you a question as well? Actually, sorry, Mike. You're going back to something you said before about the, um, you know, the tight muscles and someone saying they felt like they had a tight calf. Yeah. Um, I, I just ask you this question as well. This, this, the definition between understanding people doing a marathon and can't walk down stairs the next day and having that Dom's effect, you know, and you'll know it. Whenever um, there's a lad who I, I work with and he, he did the, uh, the marathon in uh, Manchester, and for two days, three days after that, he was, uh, you know, literally couldn't walk and his legs were really tender to touch. And, um, you know, uh, as anybody else would, I try and catch him on the off when he's not looking, grab his leg and squeeze it, you know, just to see if I can make him jump out of the chair. But the difference between understanding muscle tissue damage and tightness, people, I've seen people posting uh, on the next day after, after a marathon, doing lots of stretching or massage post-event and not understanding the difference between tightness and damage just what's your thoughts on that yeah so i think um there's a nuance to uh, degrees of damage there's the natural everyday damage that's a re result of training and training hard or competition um, and then there's an injury type damage so if we're talking um i've just done hard training or a hard event there is a microscopic level of damage, but it's not a damage that we are calling pathological or, or a problem. Then if you do think that having a massage or doing some foam rolling or some soft tissue work is helping, then we pretty much know that any of that help is more of just a psychological perception. 
there's 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 no real effect going into the tissue in a recovery way. Um, but likewise, I think it, it's being um, real world enough to realize that, OK, well, if you've got the money and you're prepared to pay the money to do that and it feels better, then why not go and do it? But don't come away from there and don't let anyone pretend that this is happening to you. Don't come away saying that um, he's released something or stretched something or um, done something to structures that's physiologically not happening. On the flip side of that is if you have damaged yourself, if something is injured, then yeah, any hands-on, any soft tissue work for a period of time, depending on, on where on that spectrum of injury you are, is probably not advised, certainly around that area. Um, but with the with the um, real acute DOMS, post-activity post stuff, then yeah, it is damage in inverted commas again, but it's not damage you should be worried about. And most of us between zero and probably 72 hours are going to be categorically better after it. So if you want to sit in a nice bucket or you want to have a massage or just go in for a little walk helps. The evidence for it suggests that, to be honest, whether you do something or nothing probably doesn't make too much difference past about three or four days. We'll all be about in the same place at that point. Um, and, you know, yeah, certainly I think I, I'm flashing having flashbacks to some of my ministry of funny walks after some of the events i've done in the past and uh, and it, it is cripplingly painful sometimes after certain events but you just if you have to go up and downstairs on your bum for a day or two then you paid the piper for for what you've done to get to that point so there you go but uh, yeah if it's if it's just normal everyday tightness from training and events then it's normally just going to settle and if you fancy doing something to yourself or someone doing something to you then it's more a perception of help and a physiological uh, sorry a psychological benefit rather than the physical super now from the ministry of funny walks this leads us on nicely doesn't it so our recent eight time late yeah. i always get this wrong don't i uh, uh, so are you still coming downstairs on your bum? No, no, yeah, <laughs> coming down normally now. Maybe not for a few days. Maybe not for uh, a couple of days, but yeah, fine now. And, and back Fantastic. running. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I can I can imagine what there's been a lot of things on your mind for the last week. So, uh, what kind of things have you been thinking about with the last uh, last few days since a hundred? Yeah, probably not surprisingly, most of the things on my mind have been linked to the Lakeland One Hundred and uh, my run there. Um, some of the experiences that I had out on the course um, in terms of interactions with other runners, but also thinking about my own performance as well, and in particular, some of the psychology around that. So, yeah, there's sort of three main things that have been on my mind. Um, the first one sort of relates to some of the interactions I had with other runners and something I've noticed over the last sort of two or three years more. Um, I don't think it's any more apparent. I think I've just become more aware of it. And it's about the sort of, pacing strategies and the fact that a lot of people don't actually have a pacing strategy and or engage at all with pacing and um, I'm not sure if I do this a little bit just to uh, to entertain myself um, sometimes in the early hours where you just want to get into the event but I do like to sort of uh, and often people just volunteer the information anyway but I often chat with people in the um, early stages when you're on the climbs about what they're planning to, you know in terms of time and I, I always find it particularly interesting around sort of the four, five, six hour point where you would think this should start to become more of a sort of a separation between people who are on certain schedules compared to others. 
And I've noticed it just surprises me how many people still around five, six, seven hours um, that you come across and you say, um, you know, what are your plans for the race and um, uh, what you're hoping to do time-wise? And they just say, oh, well, I'm just hoping to get round. You know, I'm just planning to get round. If I get round in 37, 38 hours, or in, this year someone said to me, you know, I did it last year in 36 hours. I'm hoping to get round in a similar time. And uh, I always wonder whether I should tell them that that uh, at that point they're on a schedule for around about 26, 27 hours. Um, you know, it's kind of understandable if people go out on the first leg a bit fast, because I, I know a lot of people do when you look at the, the pacing to Seathwaite. But once you get in sort of towards um, Wasdale Head, you know, three or four legs in, and you're still getting people who are significantly faster than they should be, it starts to become a little bit of a concern. And so it got me thinking about why people don't necessarily engage with the process. Because by and large, a lot of the people that you come across who say that, they don't, they've got no plan. There is no schedule. It's just, you know, I'm just going to go and feel. I just want to get around kind of thing. Um, and they don't recognize. And, and when you do tell them, they say, oh, I, I, I probably should back off. You know, I should start to slow down. I didn't realize that I was going that quick. So uh, that got me to thinking about, um, you know, why might that be and why might people um, choose not to have a schedule? What might be stopping people sort of engaging with the pacing process? And I'm not advocating that you have a very strict uh, pacing process, but I think it, it is useful to have some idea of where you should be in terms of pacing schedule. Uh, and I kind of get into how you might do that in a little while, but in terms of why people might not do it, I think it might be the sort of the scale, the magnitude of the event that can put people off because the minute you start thinking about putting together a schedule for 15 legs of the race and each leg might be between an hour and a half, two and a half hours for me, but for some people it could be two hours to three hours. Obviously, that does start making you a little bit anxious potentially in the first place because you start thinking about the magnitude and the scale of what you're trying to achieve. But I think those sort of avoidant behaviours where you're trying to avoid engaging with it they're okay in terms of making you feel good in the build-up to the event because you're kind of avoiding that stressor but it doesn't help you in the event when you find yourself that you you've gone off one two three hours too quickly over the first sort of nine ten hours of the event and then you get into sort of Braithwaite and, and Buttermere and, and you see people with heads on the table and you think there's still 70 miles to go but you, it is those checkpoints where you really start to see people suffering you think well really the intensity you should be going at in those early legs you should be getting to those places feeling pretty fresh and, and the intensity should never be that testing um so i think part of it might be that sort of pressure um so if because if you do set realistic schedules then you should be feeling very fresh in those early stages and maybe some of the elite runners might choose to use different strategies they might go off quite hard because they're trying to have an impression on other runners and trying to affect mm -hmm. other people's strategies or fatigue them by going off with certain schedules but by and large that those sort of strategies are, uh, should be reserved in my opinion for those elite people that might be engaging in that battle for sort of those top positions and, and potentially taking a risk um so i don't think you know you don't want to be necessarily setting a challenging schedule you want to be setting a schedule that you feel comfortable about achieving um and and that should help build confidence once you put that in place and practiced it in 
uh, in advance, but also in the event, I think it's going to make you feel a lot better if you know where you are in terms of the event and uh, and that you're on a schedule that that suits you. Um, I think, but that sort of alludes to one of the other reasons I think why people might avoid facing schedules, and that's because of the difficulty in the, an event such as the Lakeland 100 to actually put together a schedule because it's not like a road marathon where you can use a 5k or 10k pace to estimate what you can do at the marathon you know exactly what pace if you're on a flat course then you should be able to have a good idea of what a reasonable pace should be that's not to say that people often stick to those in road marathons but at least you know what uh, a, a decent schedule should be for those events for your uh, level of fitness at that time but i think obviously for ultras it's much more difficult and um um, obviously the person you watch has little meaning There's such a difference between the pace that you're doing on a climb to a descent or if you're on a technical section to, to on a non-technical section um, you might know what a realistic heart rate is heart rate later in the event starts to become less useful less meaningful anyway um, as you struggle to sort of achieve a, a, the normal heart rates that you're used to seeing in your training so I think um, you need to think about you know it, getting out on the course or at least on similar terrain and looking at the pace that you're running at in training for five, six, seven hours and then setting something that's considerably slower than that. I mean, if you've got access, this year for the first time I had a watch that was measuring power. My power in the race was at about 75% of what I was doing in the recce's. So this year for the first time I did all four recce's. And when you add the accumulated time for the four recce's, for me, I ran them in 19 hours 50. And I did 26 hours in the event. So it gives you an idea of how much different. And, and in the recce's, I'm running at an easy, you know, just easy intensity. I'm not running those as a race. And yet I'm six hours slower or over six hours slower in the event than what I'm doing in the recce's when I'm running for maybe five, six hours. So if you do five, six hour training runs for Lakeland, feeling comfortable, you still need to be significantly slower than that in your in your schedule so i think that can help if you can get out on the course get some data on at least maybe heart rate for the first five six hours should be a decent indicator of intensity set some some process goals have a realistic target for yourself then you should be in a much better position to to sort of set a a reasonable schedule for yourself but i would always err on the side of caution in terms of setting difficult challenging targets because believe it or not if you get it right you can run very well late in the event and there's some flat sections through Langdale and similar in other um, ultra events where you've got very runnable sections later on that people are maybe not in a position to capitalize on but if you get the pace in even if you underestimate a bit early on you can um, you can get in that back later so I, I would very much advocate having at least some kind of limit in terms of I don't want to go quicker than this but you know if you're going for a particular time and I did this year come across a few more people that had a plan uh, and interestingly when you look at the research with ultra marathon runners and they look at differences between people who finish and don't finish you see that more of the people that finish are ones that did have a plan and used pacing as a coping strategy and engaging with the current pace compared to the people who disengaged from the process um so that there's, there's research evidence to support that as well um but i would definitely advocate having some kind of plan in place um 
So I don't know if you guys got any thoughts on on pacing in ultra marathons or ultra events more generally. Um, Mike, I'll come to you. Yeah, I do. I think I think so. One interesting thing I see a lot of the time is people who have a plan, but it's just a really bad plan, a really <laughs> un, uh, sort of badly thought out plan, and that plan being. I'm deliberately going to go faster at the start to build a sort of credit in the bank because I'm expecting the wheels to fall off later and I want a buffer zone. So it's just a, a badly planned plan almost. Um, I think I also see that some of the people who don't have a plan, they miss the simple point of you cannot train easy or slow and then suddenly turn up on race day and race hard or fast. So it's it, it's that sort of gap between those two, and then the third thing I think is is there's quite I I've read evidence you know know it much better than I do but I've read evidence suggesting that based on ability, the elites are much better at being able to associate with what's going on in the event, and the better strategy for us mere mortals is to maybe dissociate during the event, but it's that understanding that that dissociation isn't ignoring everything it's maybe distractions and it's maybe thinking about other things but you have to keep an eye on the metrics and the pacing and the strategy that you're implementing so i think it's that little nuance of you know yeah don't ignore what's going on but maybe try and only dip in and out of focusing on the pacing yeah no definitely on that last point i would you know i think some of the evidence suggests that a balance between sort of the association and dissociation can be helpful there's obviously certain times in the race when you might want to sort of dissociate from some of the feelings that you're experiencing or uh, try and use cognitive strategies that might help you time limit those so that you're not expecting that to be how you're going to feel for the remainder of the event or engaging strategies that might help make you feel better those kind of uh strategies uh, but you want to be so you don't want to be engaging with the feelings themselves at that point but then there's certainly other times that you want to be very much sort of uh, associating with the race and I think if you do that and you're engaging with the metrics and so on and keeping on top of your uh, your plan and your process goals then that can help you not get in a position where you're actually needing to dissociate from the feelings that you're experiencing um, uh, and that obviously differs depending on the, the length of race because a lot of the research that's done is done in much shorter events where we're talking about high intensity events where most of how you you know you're doing a 10k race or a 5k race most of what you're feeling is not particularly pleasant whereas in an ultra because the high levels of intensity that you, you should be at if you're on your limit whereas in an ultra mar marathon event actually the intensity should be such that that's not that unpleasant to associate with but obviously with time there's going to be wear and tear on feet joints Robin, uh, so there's going to be other things that might be unpleasant that you don't necessarily want to associate with or, um, and you want to sort of distract yourself from. So I think the use of those strategies probably need to be different for ultra marathon events. And it, interesting what you said about the bad plan. I won't name any names, but I was talking to someone before the event who'd no. been to... <laughs> well, you'll know him because he's, uh, he's um, marshaled on a number of occasions, but he was doing the 100 this year. And uh, he knows uh, he knows one of the past winners and someone that you you probably know who I mean in terms of the past winners, someone who 
always used a strategy where they would go out hard and try to break the opposition. Down. I was just about to bring him up. <laughs> yeah. <the> question. <laughs> yeah. So he'd been to my talk and he'd been to a couple of my talks in the past about uh, pacing and he'd sort of built a plan that was half around what I'd said, but half of what had been recommended by the person that you've got written down. Um, and unfortunately, this person didn't finish. Um, and I don't know, I've not seen him afterwards, so I've not been able to discuss that with him and, and what the reasons for that were. But I think sometimes if you're getting conflicting advice, then you, it can be very difficult to, to put a plan together when you're trying to sort of amalgamate evidence from different people. But I think that it is an example of there are certain strategies that will work for people who are right at the elite end it might work for them in terms of an outcome goal of winning an event but i would still argue that they could potentially have run the course faster with a different schedule and a different pacing but if they're interested in winning it and breaking other people maybe they don't mind if it ends up costing them half an hour on their time um yeah. because they go out hard and break someone else as part of their strategy well let's 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 have the name out there because uh because I've just jotted this down while you're talking. I was jotting a few things down. So we're talking about Stuart Mills here. For we are, aren't we? Yeah. Okay. So Stuart Mills, of course, is a sports psychology lecturer. So uh, much like yourself. So he 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 understands how the mind works in ultras. He's not, you know, he's an intelligent guy. Yeah, yeah. Stuart, yeah. That was one of my points I wanted to bring up that uh, that Stuart's approach was. Remember when it, what he basically said to me was, if you can run, if you're in a good enough shape to run, then run it and run hard. And that was kind of his. So he would always be, you know, you'd have the start photograph coming out of Coniston and by the time they'd, they'd run through the town, he's, he's running 5K pace, 400 metres off the front of the whole pack. And of course, yeah. it worked for him. He even won the event as a, if I remember right, it was a vet 50 when he won as well. You know, and his strategy was just to go out hard. And if you feel like you can run, then you run. And there'll be times when you can't run. Um, and just bit, before I'm going to say something else about Stuart in a second, but before that, you won't have obviously been at the 50 briefing because you were at the 100 briefing, but one of the things I said to the 50 runners is, and I think this is true across the board in terms of pacing strategies and bad strategies, I see it a lot with Ironman is much more technical than ultra running because you've got the swim and the bike and there's power meters and all this kind of stuff. And whilst there's a lot of technicalities to running, I think less so than something that involves three sports. But before the race... You hear people talking about how I'm going to do I'm going to this for nutrition and this for the swim and this for the pacing. And they plan it out before. But yet on race day, people just do stupid things, you know. So they have it all planned out. They know what is the right thing to do. And then on race day, they just do stupid things. And not only that, whilst they're doing that stupid thing, they know it's stupid and they carry on doing it. So they'll go out too hard and they know they're going too hard. And everybody else is still run, coming past them. So they won't slow down because of the pressure of people overtaking them or whatever it may be. So even when they know it's the wrong thing, they still carry on doing it. And I, I, I said that to the, to the people at the 50 uh, briefing. And I think that's just a common thing across all sports. Just having a difficulty of, of um, executing your plan on race day because of whatever it is, the atmosphere, the adrenaline, the anxiety. But just going back to Stuart and his approach of I'm just going to go out hard and if I feel good, I'm going to run hard. Just to throw this back to you, what the public's perception is of that kind of approach. So I think when I've sat there watching, you know, you'll watch Kona Ironman or something on, on you know, live stream 
and everybody, or nobody loves anything better than to see someone ride like a lunatic off the front and take it to the rest of them. And no one's looking at them thinking, oh, that's a very poor pacing strategy this person's adopting. They're looking at it going, come on, you know, give it to them. And that strategy of that, that heroic attitude, and I'm just going to take it to them and just go out like a lunatic. And if I can hold on and hold on, I wonder whether our perception of that, rather than someone who's more reserved, encourages people to do that. I, I think you're uh, spot on. I mean, it just make, brings me back to the number of times I've watched the London Marathon and you've got Brendan Foster and Steve Cram saying, oh, so-and-so's having a great run today. He's gone through 10 miles in so-and-so or gone through halfway and, you know, well on for a PB. And I'm just like, yeah, wait for it, wait for it, <laughs> wait, and then crash. And then there's no, oh, actually, maybe they're not having a good run. Um, maybe I got that wrong. It's just yeah. the next year, it'll be having a great race. You know, he's gone through 10K, just only 30 seconds off his PB for 10K. And it's like, yeah, that's not a great race. <laughs> but you're right. I, I think uh, very much people feel as though, yeah, I, if I have this very sensible plan and then I just implement that, no one's going to say, wow, you were on for a great time or you really went for it and it's just a shame it didn't work out or next time. Or I mean, I always refer to people uh, after marathons, people as on for People always say, I was, I was on for this, I was on for that. Um, be, because people want to hang a time around the neck rather than talk about the time they actually ran. Um, and I think it is that social perception and how people are going to respond to it that is driving part of that. Because it's like, well, if I go for my sensible schedule and it still doesn't work out, I don't get my time and then I still don't get credit from other people. Whereas if I really go for it, just on that one day, it might just work out and I might just get away with it. And if I do slow down a bit at the end, I've got time um in hand but even if i don't people are going to say well pat on the back well done for for trying to you know go for a really fast time so i think how people are going to respond is certainly um having an impact to some degree that and we've talked previously about social media and the need for us to discuss that at length but i think that it is relevant again here yeah yeah absolutely absolutely Hmm. yes Lots of good points. Lots of yeah. good points. Um, I am um, uh, interestingly after the hundred as well. I put a, a tweet out. But someone had spoke to me at the late hundred and made just made a passing comment and I put a tweet on, and uh, it got a much bigger response than I, than I thought it would, to be honest. And uh, it obviously struck a nerve with with a, a few people. I felt sorry for the guy actually because he was really polite. He was a nice guy. He wasn't he wasn't being funny in any way, and. Um, so, yeah, I hope it's not on Twitter. But uh, it was just in passing someone said to me at the late 100, they said, uh, because we have such a high DNF rate, and I think, was it 56 57% success this year, wasn't it? I think it was around that. Although someone says it should be a lot higher, actually, because I'm, I'm missing the people that didn't turn up and stand on the start line. So the ones who, so yeah, yeah. don't even stand on the start line. If 10% of people who have entered don't turn up and stand on the start line, then they fail to complete it because... Maybe mentally or physically they weren't up for it, knew they couldn't do it. So technically, uh, saying it was a 57% completion rate is actually, you know, doing it an injustice. And it's probably less than 57%, it's probably less than 50%. But anyway, this chap had said to me, passing comments, something along the lines of, can't remember the exact word for word, but 50% completion, it's nothing to be proud of. Um, the Perhaps you should look at the course or the time limits to make it more manageable for other people. So I put that on Twitter and said, oh, this is a good example of what's wrong with endurance sports. Someone suggesting the event should be made easier. 
And then there was so many comments on that, so many people uh, chipping in. And it went off. What was interesting, it went off in lots of different tangents, loads of different tangents. So the first one, which was interesting, is how many people came back and said, well, clearly he just failed to prepare. You know, it's got nothing to do with making the event easier. If you fail to prepare, that's why you will fail to complete the event. So should have gone and trained harder, you know, should have done more training, should have done more recce's, not physically uh, uh, or psychologically strong enough to do that event. Now, I found that fascinating because I'm also quite dismissive of people who are DNF'd because I know people who had done a huge amount of training and they'd already completed the event in previous years, but this year they failed to complete it. So it would be wrong to say that these are novices or inexperienced people who are, you know, basically racing above their pay grade. They're not. They're people who were very well prepared, very well experienced, and they just failed to complete it. And the reason they failed to complete it is because it's just so hard. And it then got me thinking about the fact that that reaction is probably generated by the fact that there are very few races or challenges anywhere in the UK where even when you train really hard and you're really experienced, the event is so hard that you just may not finish it. And I think that's where the, uh, a lot of the, some of the 100 mile ultras and certainly with Lakeland and, and other events, that's where they sit, is that this event is so hard, it doesn't matter how hard you train or how hard you uh, prepare or your past experience, there is still a good chance that you are not going to finish this event, which is what makes it one of the true challenges. Because... If you look at an Ironman triathlon, again, I don't want to be dismissive of people, but if you look at an Ironman triathlon, most people who do a moderate amount of training with relatively good fitness, they're 99% chance of getting around. They're going to finish it in whatever time, but they're going to finish it. There are a few events out there where people, no matter how much they prepare, are still very, very challenging. So... We mentioned this last week, talking about what makes a true challenge and this, this edge of, you know, people wanting things to be challenging, but they want it to be manageable at the same time. So there's a threshold point where they're uncomfortable past that point because there's a risk I might not finish this. And I think you can put people into two categories here. There's the people that participate because they just enjoy participating and the people who want a true challenge. And if you want a true challenge, you've either got to A, do an event that you may not finish, it's so hard, no matter how hard you prepare, you may not finish, or you have to set yourself a target time that you may not achieve. So you could enter an Ironman and set yourself a target time for 12 hours, knowing that you would have to be the best you could possibly be and suffer on that day, and you might get inside 12 hours. Or enter a marathon and say you want to go under 3.30, and you have to be the best you can possibly be, and you will have to suffer on that day to get under 3.30. But realistically, you know, that that's, for, for me, that's what a true challenge is. It's where you're either setting yourself, A, a time that you will probably, there's a good chance you're going to fail, or you're doing a distance that there's a good chance you're not going to finish, even when you have done your full preparation and trained as hard as you possibly can. So what's your thoughts on that? Uh, uh, Ian, come to you first. No, I agree. I mean, certainly for me, um, that that's what endurance sport is all about, is it either being in one of those two situations where 
you're in an event where there's a good chance that you might not finish or at least that by finishing you have achieved something so even if i'm confident that i will find a way of getting around one way or another even if it's way off the time I, i've never finished i've finished lakeland in varying times uh, so the first year i did it in the pairs event 38 hours since then i've been low 30s and then beyond that it's always been under 30 hours but it's varied from well into the 28s down to low 26s now and i've never been disappointed in a performance at following that whereas in a road marathon if i've run if i ran like last year in the heat at london i sort of went at an aggressive sh uh, schedule despite the conditions and then suffered accordingly and, and ran 301 very disappointed last year and then came back and had a good run this year got very close to my pb um and was very happy and it was very much about the performance and the time whereas i think in a uh an event such as the lakeland you always uh, you always achieve something so i think that's what endurance sport for me for me personally is about is being in one of those two situations um and and each can be equally rewarding but it needs that obviously the challenging event might differ depending on you individually and what what puts something right on the limit for you so it could be the Lakeland 50 for someone else that puts that right on their limit but when you look at the completion rates um obviously the majority of people that is manageable for them the 50 whereas the 100 takes it to a different level but yeah no for me i think it, it, you need to be getting into for it to be true endurance sport then in in one of those two situations yeah and i think just going back to you saying about your london marathon i'm not suggesting that the 100 mile is more of a challenge than running 250 at London Marathon because, you know, if you're on that that limit of you want to go under 250 for the marathon and you've been you train so so hard to prepare for that and you suffer to go under 250, that goal could be equally challenging, if not more challenging, than you completing a hundred miler. But in either scenario, you're on your limits, whether it's to complete or whether it's to run for a time. It's a, for me, you know, it's it, it's an equal challenge. Um, Mike, coming to you, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, identical to Ian's. It's either been performance or just the finishing achievement for me. Um, it's changed in my uh, athletic lifespan. So certainly in my uber competitive days, it was all about performance. Now, in a completely uh, different avenue to that, when I mentioned before about N MDS next year, I need the fear of not finishing to motivate me to train around my family and my business and everything else that have become bigger distractions from training. So I'm trying to channel the fear of not being able to finish into my motivation to train. Um, I think I see, I see a lot of people lately put in um, finite windows on their opportunities or dedication to take on some challenges. I'm only having one shot at this. This is my only time I'm going to do this. And I think for those guys, the fear of failure or not being able to achieve the challenge loses a little bit of perspective because they've um, they've they've boxed themselves into if I don't do it this year, I'm never doing it. So now, now as much as I want the kudos and, and esteem of finishing, if it could be slightly easier, I, I'd be quite happy because... I might only have one chance or a certain amount of money I'm dedicated to this. I see it a lot in channel swimmers. 
when I've worked with channel swimmers in the past or was doing channel swimming myself, it's a big expense. There's a lot of time and, and, and people are like, it's this year or never. So they're looking for the best tide they could ever swim in. They're looking for the warmest water they could ever swim in. And, and they're trying to almost uh, dilute, pardon the pun, with channel swimming. They're trying to dilute the challenge and the and lower the percentage of I may not make this challenge because of those factors. So um, obviously the harder the challenge and the higher the, the chance of failure, or non-completion, then it becomes a greater reward for completing it, in my mind. Yeah, so that, yeah. that to me, becomes my intrinsic motivation then and the external motivation to commit myself to that race more. And and actually, there's it's... it's, it's as the um, reward for, for finishing becomes greater, then actually so does... Or the opposite happens with the the perception of failure then actually it's not such a big deal if you fail those hard challenges because it was the mountain you're trying to climb is harder. So if you don't get as far up that mountain, then I think more of you for doing that than if you stumble at what we would all perceive to be a lesser event. Yeah, yeah. So I get what you're saying. It's like saying Ian, if Ian's trying to run sub 250 at the London Marathon and goes for it and fails but runs a 253, then I still got a lot more credibility that yeah. for that. I've been saying I'm going to go under 3.30 and just jogging round. So, yeah. it, you know, people going going for their limits. But the um, but obviously, when we're talking about Ian doing 2.50 and we're talking about running 100 miles, um, th- there is a, a tendency there for people to look at it and say, well, that's quite elitist, really. You're talking about the top end. and But, but I think you it was I think Mike, you said this, or Ian wanted to just mentioned about that everybody's limits are different. So mm. if my mate's mum is trying to get round a park run and she's never ran in her life and she's trying to get fit to get round a park run. For her to finish that 5K is a massive challenge and to run the whole thing without walking. So you could argue that that, she may find that equally as painful and physically and psychologically challenging as Ian trying to go sub 250. So we're just talking about what is your personal limit? What is your thresholds? Um, and you um, working to what your personal limit is because by doing that, the reward is much greater. You know, the personal reward is much greater psychologically. In the, you know, so. Um, but of course, what we've seen over the last few years is with the growth in commercial events, the more and more people running now as well. So uh, there's almost like two groups of people that are, are appearing. You can see this again on social media. It's very, very clear that what you've got is you've got the masses, if you like, and then you've got maybe the club runners or the elite runners who are going for times. And I remember, um, you know, running, I've always come through the club club background and racing track and cross country and all that kind of stuff and, and, and doing road marathons and coming through as a club runner. And years ago, there weren't that many people competing in long distance running. You know, if you went to a party somewhere, you went out for the night, you bumped into someone who was a runner, it was like, oh, bingo, I found somebody who's got an interest. Now you can go out and, and you'd be sitting around a table with 20 people. You can probably argue that a quarter of them will have done a 5K or a 10K or a Tough Mudder or a half marathon or something, okay? Now, I remember um, 15, 20 years ago, all the runners kind of referring to people as couch potatoes and they don't get off the backsides in exercise. And what's happened now is got this massive boom where far more people are running. Um, and, and a lot of them are not running for competitive reasons. They're running for social reasons. So they want to run. They want to get the T-shirt, get the medal, and they just want to complete the event. And I also think there's a lot of 
those social benefits, psych, you know, psychological well-being, you know, I'm sure, Ian, you could talk forever about the psychology well-being of people getting out and exercising in that community and stuff like that. Um, you know, the, the, there are, my view of it is that if anybody is running, if anybody gets off the couch, whether they're jog walking 5K or whether they're trying to go under 250 like Ian is at the London Marathon, it doesn't matter. If they're running, it's great. The more people that run in the UK and get off the backsides and do something, the better. So whether you fall into that category of I enter something because I like the medals and I'm going to jog walk around a 5K and, and with my friends and do it for social reasons, whether you do it for that reason or whether you're trying to go and get a good for age time at the London Marathon or whether you're somewhere in the middle, it doesn't really matter to me. If more people are running, it's better. But brings to my next point on this tweet is what I start to see is the divide between certain groups, the divide between the faster runners and I suppose those kind of social runners. So um, I, I, I'm fascinated again with the psychology, Ian, of this. And I just think as, as human beings, we are all very territorial, whether it's the town you live in or the country you come from or whether it's the football club you support or whether it's whatever group you're in, we're all quite territorial. And I almost see this territorial split between the mass run community and the club run community who kind of see themselves as the proper runners. And then we've got the, and then we've got the other people who are the mass runners and this like having a go at each other on Twitter. And I, I, you know, I'm just, I'm fascinated with that, whether that is just a psychology territorial thing, people, you know, we were here first and now these people have come along, but I, I don't get it, to be honest. I know which group I fall into, but my view is if you're going to hate someone on Twitter, hate them for something decent, not because they're running. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> there must be better reasons to dislike people. And just because people don't fit into your group, you know, why we have to have this people having a pop at each other all the time. Um, so uh, I, coming to you, Ian, I don't know if that, have you, uh, is that something you've noticed yourself? I, I, yeah, I've very much noticed that. And, um, yeah, just going back to what I said earlier about what endurance sport means to me, I, I think just making the, uh, that's not to say that I'm not completely on board with what you're saying in terms of I, I think anyone running, anyone exercising and the benefits they get from that is wonderful. And, and the reasons for participation um, are less important for me. It's just good that people are uh, running. But I think kind of making the distinction between endurance sport where you're actually being competitive and maybe endurance participation where it's just about participating and being the event and maybe some of the other social benefits that come with that but I think some of the reasons might be you know certainly if it's from the endurance sports side of things where people are being very competitive and then maybe they're being sort of disparaging towards people who are just taking part for participation reasons and maybe as you alluded to 10 years ago might have been having a go of a group of non-exercisers in a similar way I think some of that might be to do with the reasons why some people participate in competitive sport because it does bolster, you know, it can be a reason to, or a way of um, enhancing people's self-esteem, um, increasing or satisfying a need for achievement. And I think there might be an element of sort of reflective glory and people seeing themselves as being better than other people because of what they do. And then that making them feeling better about themselves if they're being critical of other groups or you know putting down another group but then obviously if someone is critical so, towards someone else 
then that can lead to from a defensive reaction from the other group. And that's when you start to get this sort of, as you mentioned, that sort of territorial and that sort of the in-group and the out-group and people being um, aggressive to people that they don't see as being part of their group, which is interesting when you get into, sort of, if you think about uh, club sport, and particularly if you're in a club that maybe broaches those different groups. Um, so you've got people that are a member of a club for participation and they're lousy in there for the participation reasons. Other people might be extremely competitive and, and very motivated for high levels of performance. They might then group together around the club. So they might put themselves into different groups and then they might be critical of people that are in other clubs. Yeah. Interestingly, and I've often seen this. So before, well, there's a lot of overlap for a lot of years. I played team sport, um, played hockey. Uh, and I noticed this um, in that people would be very critical of people from other teams, aggressive towards them. But then if you went and played, say, for Yorkshire or uh, regional compass, all of a sudden those people who are your enemies in another team become your teammates. So I think people can be members of different groups. And it's uh, like you say, it's, there, there is an element of uh, it's a natural human trait to sort of criticize other people um, in other groups. So I think you know, it's important for people that are sort of working in this area and that potentially have influence to sort of try and break down some of these barriers and identify the fact that there isn't necessarily such separation of groups because different people at different times in their sport participation, endurance sport, might be, people who have been very competitive athletes might just participate or still take part in events for participation reasons at a different point in their running or endurance career um so i think it can be a bit false sometimes when we set up those groups and if yeah. we can you know if it's possible when you're coaching or anything to uh, to sort of break down some of those barriers i think that's that can only be a good thing and it's right what you're saying though that you might get someone who joins a club as an elite runner and further down the line they become a social runner but they'll still associate themselves as a club runner yeah you know because that's their group. That's, you know, that's their group. And I so I think I, I you know, from, from my personal driver is, is, is performance and times and trying to do as well in my age group as I possibly can. That's, that's why I take part. But not everybody takes part for the same reasons. If you take part for social reasons and you run 10Ks because you just enjoy running them and the atmosphere and you're not chasing times, then not everybody has to do sport for the same reason. You know, we can have competitive people. We can have social people. But they're all still doing the same sport and we don't have to have this one group being nasty towards the other group and then this group retaliating back, mm. you know. So, uh, um, Mike, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, this is such a fascinating topic, such a fascinating debate, just engrossed listening to you two then. And um, I think I feel exactly the same as you guys in the fact that we're here to help. The jobs we all do is about giving and, and helping people out. The fact that we started this podcast is because we're trying to help people and pass on a bit of knowledge, education, stimulate debate. So I think we all probably struggle inherently to understand why people would criticise other people. It's not our nature. I think that means we probably need to um, be aware of the elephant in the room, that there are probably people involved in endurance sports that are doing it potentially for narcissistic reasons, that are people doing it because they're making financial gain out of it. So there might well be an ulterior motive to criticising some of these other spectrums and these other groups for, for their own gain. 
Um, but but I think the whole the etiquette of social media, and we've chatted before about having a, a episode just on social media. But just to dip our toe into it now, the whole keyboard warrior sort of mentality and and the way that people are acting on social media compared to the real world, would those same people at the end of an event in their club vests walk over to a different club vest and say something the same to them there? Of course they wouldn't. But for some reason, the context there, you know, I, I see it in a, whatever my aim has been at any point in my athletic career is... I've tried to be empathetic with whoever else is around. There's a local running club by me and I follow them on social media because I know the, the, the main coach there. They got hundreds of members of all spectrums. And last night they had over 50 people finishing their couch to 5K program. And I'm watching that on social media last night and they're all, they've got the same smiles on their faces that the three of us have had on our best performances ever. And I can quite happily and comfortably in my own skin look at that and smile at them and think, good for you, that's excellent. You have now got, and I guess this is where running, for example, and triathlon, what makes them unique to some of the other activities out there is that whether you run a 15-minute 5K or an hour 5K or any relevant distance and time above that, you get the same pleasure from doing it and the same achievement from doing it. So we can't all perform the same. We can't all earn the same money in the same job. We can't can't all have the same cars and stuff. Um, so likewise, you can't perform the same. But it doesn't mean I should be judgmental to other people because you can, you know, I could be judgmental to people who are better than me. I could be judgmental to people who are slightly worse than me. But I, I the biggest thing I think with all that is why aren't you just focusing on yourselves and the things you can do to be better instead of worrying what everyone else is is doing with their time and their clubs and their abilities. That's probably a key point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, just focus on yourself. Focus on your own. Make your own club as effective as it can be. Make yeah. your own performances as effective as they can be. If you ever reach that utopia where you have reached perfection, which none of us ever will, maybe you have a bit more of a right to start looking at other people's abilities and groups and stuff. But until then, focus yeah. on your own. Uh, I think, you know, interesting about the clubs as well, because I think, I think a lot of clubs have adapted now, but I think there was certainly a period maybe a few years ago where a lot of UKA athletics clubs were struggling for members and the, the numbers started to deteriorate and you were getting very low turnouts at, you know, um, local cross-country leagues and things like that. Um, whereas the other side of sport was really booming and it's probably peaked now and the numbers have kind of peaked, but you could get 5,000 people at a local 10K fun run down the road and then 80 people turning up to the local cross-country league the day after. So you're getting a stark contrast. And I, I can remember seeing several posts on Facebook from, from where running club members were actually making it very clear that they didn't want fun runners in their club. And it was this, you know, this is what we are, that's what they are. Um, and, you know, I think that's an issue. That's probably why I think I've seen clubs that have evolved so the club you're talking about locally to you, let's do a couch to 5K group. Let's get these people in. And uh, other clubs which have gone, no, this is what we are. We race track league. We race across country. And anybody who doesn't want to do that, we're not interested. And those clubs, I think, they've either struggled or, or they've survived because other clubs have closed down and there's nowhere left for people to go and they've all gathered in one place. Um, and for me... When they're saying the UK athletic clubs are really struggling at the moment and struggling for members, I have to look at it and think, well, hang on a second. At a time in the UK 
when more people than ever are running, how can running clubs be struggling for members? How is it they're struggling for members? So either people don't feel welcome when they go, or the, you know, or the clubs are making it clear that they're not welcome, or when they get there, they're not catering for them. I don't know, but so you've got people at clubs complaining about the masses, but somehow they're not making that transition for people to come and join them. And I had this conversation with a guy from a local running club, and he basically said, well, yeah, that's all fine, but um, we don't want them in the club anyway because, you know, they're not the kind of people we want. They don't race fast times and stuff like that. And what I made the point to him is, if you open the door to the masses and you encourage these people to come in, if your club is purely performance-driven, well, okay, out of the, the people that come in, you might get a new 50 members and maybe one or two of them might be, hit that performance target, if you like, because the rest are fun runners. But don't just distance yourself from them. One, because your club's going to die if you don't get people. So you need to evolve to what the current climate is. But secondly, if they all brought the kids, where will we be in 10 years' time? Because all those kids will come into the athletics clubs and go through the system. And where would we be then with this suddenly 50 kids doing the 800s and the 1500 metres on the track going through the club system? So don't be so, you know, have such a short vision as to say, well, these people aren't going to help us. They're not the kind of people that fit into our club. But if they all bring the kids, that's a, a completely different scenario. And I suppose my, it brings me on to my final point is I've also seen people blaming the drop in distance running standards because of the masses. So because the masses have taken over now and we've got all of these people just running for fun and they're only interested in medals and T-shirts and so on, that's why the standards in British distance running have dropped. What a load of nonsense. When you're looking for a target to blame and there's an easy target there, let's point the finger at them. What has that got to do with the drop in distance standards? The drop in distance standards was occurring before the masses exploded anyway, and it's just carried on falling. That's not the answer. You know, it's not the answer to point your finger at the masses who are participating. They have nothing to do with the drop in elite standards. But to solve that, the way I see it is embracing everybody and getting their children through that system if their children want to participate you know not being a pushy parent you know but if their children want to participate that's what the clubs have got to do they've got to evolve and they've got to look look long term but um but yeah i, I think i'm you know particularly this this point of blaming the masses for the drop in in elite standards and it's not related more people should mean more money more sponsorship more prizes do you know i if you look at the people who are um winning some of the big races Locally, they've got massive social media profiles and everybody follows them. And the reason they've got so many people following them is because 5,000 people did that race. And most of them were fun runners, but they all did that race and they look up to them as the winner going, he's awesome. And now he's got this massive following. You know, so it's beneficial in so many ways and more people are participating. So um, I'm rambling a bit now. Uh, Michael, come to you first. What are your thoughts on that are? Yeah, I agree with you. They, the, the standards have dropped a long time ago. I think it's a much wider reaching issue to do with funding at grassroots level, funding at national, at elite level. Um, I probably would, the only slight comparison I'd make between standards and mass participation is perhaps that slight change in culture over the last quarter of a century to do with competitiveness. 
Yeah. Things like school sports days becoming participation events, not competitive events. Yeah. That's probably some with well, us probably on the spectrum somewhere of, of why we perhaps drop down with that ability stuff. Well, you mentioned funding there, grassroots funding. So let's just take that back. How much grassroots funding was there back in the 80s and 90s when we had that real crop of elite marathon runners? Oh, very little, probably. You know, so I get maybe is that just an external thing that we can blame and point at a lack of funding when actually it should be an internal driver? It's you that wants to succeed yeah. through the training. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And again, you know, you you um you joked about being pushy parents, but as long as it's within um safe and acceptable parameters, what's wrong with having pushy parents? You know, I, I'm certainly quite pushy with my two. I'm I you know, I have uh, my oldest boy, I tell him straight, he's on project gold medal. He's he is he's, he's he's going to the Olympics by the time he's twenty. He's going to play in the Six Nations for Wales by the time he's twenty-five, and then he'll have a few years in Premiership football to to make some money before he retires. I think that's realistic, but um, but um, oh, and, then, and then we'll that's probably switch him. Plan, actually, interestingly enough, yeah, we'll, we'll, pro- we'll probably switch him to Ironman at some point as well. But um, but um, you know, teachers, um, sports coaches. It's all. I've just started coaching my seven-year-old's football team. Yeah. And and when you're doing the coaching courses, the whole thing is about participation, participation. But the kids know damn well if they've won or lost in the game, yeah. even though they're seven years old. And it's just like, allow them to compete in life, in whatever facet they'll be in, in a non-sporting context, there'll be winners and there's going to be losers. So, and you could be talking in your love lives, in your professional lives, academic lives, you, need, you know, competition is okay. Yeah. Um, so I think that side of it is 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 tough. I think with those, um, certainly your key influencers in social media tend not to be the elites outside the sort of age group elites these days. And I think that's an access thing. I Growing up in Wales here, when I was a youngster, I mean, you could walk down the street and bump into Colin Jackson. You could walk down the street and bump into Steve Jones, the, the marathon runner. Now, the, those elite guys, they're untouchable. You can't get near them. You never see them. They're, 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 they're not people that you can access in the way perhaps we used to. Most, you know, um, the, the likes of Peter Elliott and, and the Coors and Crams. These guys are jobs. These guys were around. They were balancing training and, and work. Now they're not. Now they're off all in the hot climates training 10 months of the year or competing. So, so perhaps that has taken the role model aspect. It's changed the role model for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. They, they were club runners as well, and they would compete yeah. in national cross, and they'd be competing in club events, twelve stage relays, six stage relays, and so on. You would see those people at those events. You don't now. They're like you say, they tend to be at selected like diamond league events or training abroad. Um, so you see much less of those. But I think there's much lower media profile for those people as well now. So I think there's some big cultural issues that have led to those changes. You know, in the times when we had people who could challenge for medals and running sub 210 for the marathon, we probably had 50 guys, maybe more, running around 220 and below. I mean, now that would, you, you, people start talking about you making sort of, you know, potentially making uh, GB teams or uh, international teams when you run in those sort of times, whereas at one time you would just be drowned out amongst a massive club runner. So I think there's been some big cultural issues that have changed that. But I think there's a, there's a in terms of sport, and the profile of athletics and running and endurance events is probably lower in the UK than it ever has been when you compare to a, these are very small minority sports that get real media coverage. Um, and certainly, unless it's the Olympics, um, 
running events are not are not getting much coverage. You know, like Diamond League gets uh, it's on the the red button. It's on. You know, you have to. It's not on the main channels. Um, it's not getting the headlines in the papers like when the people like you mentioned, such as Ovet and Cram and Co and Elliot were around. Whereas yeah. they they were headline news at those times. But I think you know there's been some cultural issue factors that. You know, there was a real need for people to sort of, that I mentioned earlier, that need for achievement and people, I think endurance sport and running was a real outlet for a lot of people and people were sort of feeling the need to be sort of really driving themselves. I think in terms of society, the majority of people are probably much more comfortable now than they probably were financially than maybe they were in the sort of 70s and 80s, whereas the, their achievement in life could come through the running. And there was a lot of people at clubs running 90, 100 miles a week, that was that was the norm rather than being the exception now. So I think there are a lot of other reasons that uh, explain it other than, you know, the, the emergence of participation sport. I, don't, I think that's that can only be a good thing in terms of the society. Um, I don't think it really explains what we're seeing. And I think this, this strength in depth thing as well, I mean, you mentioned that it's like this peer group or your social group. If you were turning up at a running club and you were maybe the 30th best runner in your club, um, so when I when I ran at my running club, I could only just make the top group, and I was I was a good club runner. I only did one marathon and around two thirty six, which at the time was just good club standard. But I was never and never the fastest runner in the club at any point. Mm. So I was always chasing people, always chasing people on the back of the fast group. And I think now you could probably go to a running club, and if you ran two thirty six, you'd be the outlier. You'd be yeah. the, the comfortably the fastest person in the club. So you set your targets on if you're the best one, you're that you're that big fish in that small pond. And I do see people jumping between clubs and forming their own groups now. So like an endurance group where because the club doesn't have enough people for them to train with of their own level. So once you start losing that, uh, that, that strength in depth, then, then, it, it, you know, you, you can't find, you always need people who are better than you. I've always said to people, train with people who are better than you. You're always chasing them. And if you're always getting your backside kicked, you're always going to be chasing them. And I think that's, yeah, that downward spiral perhaps produces a bit of a, bit of a problem. Yeah. But, um, but on the whole, so what we're saying is then that people run for different reasons and whatever social group you find yourself in, whether you're a club runner, whether you're a social runner, whether you're a park runner, whatever, you know, we, we, we you know, I know that people are territorial, but the bottom line is people run for different reasons. And ultimately, when you're out there, just be nice to people. There's no reason to be funny with people just because they don't fit into your group because people run for more reasons uh, than just performance or whatever it may be. Yeah. Any final words here from you, Mike? No, no. We've been able to chat loads and loads today. It's been great. Yeah. 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 Anything from you, Ian? No, no. I think that's everything. I think, yeah, we've covered some really good points there and um, hopefully we didn't marginalise anyone in doing so. I don't think so. I think we were just... we were trying to the, the key messages we should be trying to embrace anyone that's interested in endurance sport um and we solved we solved uk athletics strategy now haven't that's we? right yeah it's really simple just on this point i would say like even simple things like this you know i think commercial organizers get a lot of grief as well and for club runners you know i think it's settled down now but in the last five years people have struggled to come to terms with commercial events and uh, and um especially club runners who are used to you know club organized events and, and the lack of connection between potentially youth athletics on this grassroots and commercial event organisers. So what I would like to see is running clubs contacting commercial events in their region and saying, 
can you feed them into our club? Because as far as I'm aware, that doesn't happen. It might happen somewhere, but it doesn't happen at the bulk of events I know. And, um, you know, uh, a lot of those events are UK athletics affiliated. So go and speak to them and, you know, set up this pathway to get people into the, into the club. You know, open your doors, get people in, adopt all different abilities, whether it's couch to 5K, whether it's elite runners, get everybody in. Get them encouraging to the children to come down and join the club. And that's got to be the way forward for everybody. You know, it's it's not just about elite or mass participation. It's about running. And there are lots of different types of runners who run for a lot of different reasons. So that's our keynote to end on this uh, for today's podcast is to be nice to people. And I'm hoping the next time we speak, the sun will be shining wherever you are. <laughs> Good to speak to you. I'll uh, speak to you next week. Take care, Jen. guys. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the Endurance Coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon.